John, the epistle, 1 John chapter 4. And uh, we, uh, two weeks ago, we were in verse 1 through 6. I'm going to read those. I'm not going to go over it, but I'm going to read it just to kind of get the continuity going. Uh, beloved, chapter 4, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know that the spirit of God, uh, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that has not confessed Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard uh, that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us, and who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In John chapter 4, he comes to a part of his epistle where he lays out to the readers there in the area and around Ephesus and other places, he lays out for them, in essence, two tests to know the truth of the teacher and what they're teaching. I remember, as I shared with you, the problem behind all of 1 John is this, is this teaching called Gnosticism, which basically is a heretical teaching that infiltrated not only the Christian movement but other movements as well that basically said that, that salvation, if I can use that term, but it only really applied to how they thought, comes from the right knowledge. You had to know the right things. And we never know what you had to know. There's, no, there's nowhere have I ever seen the laying out what the knowledge was. You just had to have right knowledge. And it was based on a concept that that which is physical is evil, that which is spiritual is good. And therefore, Jesus as Messiah could not be both God you know, in flesh. He could not be that because the flesh, the evil part, could not be with the God. God. And so there was this huge heresy. And it's a little bit more involved, and I've told you that before. But what you have in verse 1 through 6 is you have basically a test of authority. It is a doctrinal test, and it simply is this. Whatever you read or whatever you hear, whoever teaches, do they agree with the statement that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Or that, in other words, do they believe Jesus and what is taught about Jesus, what they had taught about Jesus, what John had taught about Jesus? It is a test of the authority. Next comes up, though, in verses 7 through verse 21, a test that deals with the authenticity it is a type of moral test, and it is based on the one commandment that Jesus gave that needed to be kept by all of them. It was the commandment to love. And so we come then to verse 7, and this is what John says. And I find out, I'm having, you know, I print out the scriptures, and I need to print in a bigger font because I have to do this to read it. That's why I'm lifting up. I hit, I hit 54 the other day, and it, it, uh, it's hard to see. So I'm like, what is this? It also helps that I write all over this stuff and I can't read anything. Beloved, <laughs> let us, here's what John says, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. How do you know God? John says there in verse 7, because you love. It is ultimately the example of knowing God. Now, the Gnostics taught that there was knowledge of God through secrets and mysteries and all of that stuff. And John says, no, 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 no. Listen, you know God. Because of love. And, and people who love one another love God and know God. Now, the word for love, as I've shared many times in the last sermon that I preached to you in January before I took the month of February off from preaching, John 3.16 talks about love. And the word love, as I explained, is the word agape. 
And the word agape, the Greek, that Greek word is found, you can't, really can't find it outside the New Testament. They, they, the New Testament writers, because of Jesus, took that word agape and they gave it its fullness. And that word agape is just a self-giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's the love that God has in John 3.16 when he gave his one and only son. It's the love Jesus had when he laid down his life for his friends. Nobody in the New Testament writes more about love than John. He does it in his gospel. He does it in his epistle. This chapter is just really a chapter of love. I know we, we always say 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love. You know, you know Paul wrote that. And, and I get it. It is. And it's a great chapter. But this chapter also is a chapter of love. It really it just speaks to the heart of it. Because in, in, in Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a problem. A problem that they have with spiritual gifts. And so in chapter 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. Uh, and trying to solve a problem that they have uh, with the group of people who think because they have charismatic gifts, they're superior. And so he talks about the gift of love as the absolute necessity. But here what John is doing is he's taking that love and he's linking it back to the commands of Jesus. And he's saying love is the epitome. It is the ultimate example. It is the moral test of faith. The doctrinal test of faith is what do you think about Jesus? But the moral test, the test of whether or not you truly follow him, is love. You can confess him correctly in terms of doctrine. But unless you love, you do not live correctly. You do not have that. He says if you're born of God, begotten of God, you know God. The one, he says in verse 8, who does not love, does not know God. For God is love. God is love. It's one of the ways God is described. I served for a pastor Many, 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 many years ago, he used to say, it's the only definition of God in the Bible is God is love. Well, that's not correct. God calls himself holy, and God is holy is the definition. God is just. But the concept of love isn't meant to define God. The concept of love, that God is love, is meant to explain what God does, how he works. It is the field. It is, it is the expanse of his work is based purely on his unbelievable love for us. He loves us. We can know him. Verse 9 says, By this the love of God was manifested. It was made known in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. John, 1 John 4 9 is a lot like John 3 16. He sent the only begotten. The word begotten uh, comes from the word that means the only of, and, and only born. And it doesn't mean that he's the only flesh. It's not just that. But he is the only one who is of God in his totality. Jesus is God in the flesh. To be the only begotten of God is more than simply being flesh and blood. It is to be the only one who is of God and from God. He is that one. And in his coming was a demonstration of great love, of the love of Jesus, but also of the love of God. So the love of God is manifested, made known, it's revealed to us, it abides with us. In his gospel, John talks about the manifestation or the abiding within us of the Holy Spirit. And here also the Son is made known that we can live and have the essence of life through him. So verse 10 says this, in this then is true love, love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. How do we know that God loves us? Because he sent Jesus. And the word propitiation then becomes important. 
because the road of propitiation is a very fancy, fancy, fancy doctrinal term. Uh, and it speaks of what Christ did at the cross. I'm, I'm preaching in, in um, March and April about the cross of Christ and all, and all that it involves. Central to understanding what the cross is is to recognize that at the cross, Jesus died in our place and on our behalf. He satisfied the wrath of God towards sins. Now, when we say he satisfied the wrath of God, bells and whistles go off, and people say, ah, that's what you can't, you know, God is this angry God, and he has to have Jesus on the cross, blah, 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 blah. One of our problems is we look at human wrath, and we think that applies to God, and we don't know what we're talking about. Because our understanding of wrath is kind of, I remember, you know, growing up, the, the, the movie, the Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, you know, that always comes from the wrath of this, it's just the anger, you know. You know, when, when you got in trouble, you know, you, you know, mom, you know, you don't want to experience my wrath, you know, that kind of stuff. But wrath, that, that's not, wrath is not based on, on a vindictiveness or meanness. Wrath comes from a word that means to boil over. It speaks of patience. You know, you boil water, you know, if you, if you boil water, it takes a long time for it to boil, right? I mean, it just takes a while. You got you to get that fire up to 212 degrees. And it, if you just put the fire at 212, it's going to take a long time for boil, water to boil. You put it up to, to 5 or 612, and you're going to burn your house down, but it's going to boil quicker. <laughs> but the other thing is if you watch the pot, it won't boil either. I found that if you stand there and watch it, it doesn't boil well. They say a watch pot never boils. I mean, it's so true. But it's the idea of a slow simmer. You know, you, you're going to cook that, that water boil, and you want to get that pasta in. I'm very impatient. I mean, it's as soon as I see a bubble, man, that pasta's going in. Soon as, as soon as one bubble, man, it's this time. It's ready. But that's not right. You've got to get that thing rolling. And, and the whole concept of wrath is a very slow simmering patience that at some point gets, that some place gets to the point where enough is enough. And as I shared back in January about the holiness of God and the justice of God, God who is holy must in his holiness deal with sin. If God doesn't deal with sin, God's not holy. You ever met a parent who never disciplines their kid? Like you're in the, you're in the grocery store and, and the kid's just a brat and you, you want to ask if it'd be okay if you slaughtered that kid on their behalf just once. <laughs> on behalf of everybody in the store, can I spank your kid? I hear we're not supposed to spank kids anymore. I don't, I don't know. But, you know, you kind of want to do something. And then, and, or if it's like a church kid and the staff talks about your kid, what a brat they are, you know, and, and, and all of that stuff. You may not know that, but we do that from time to time. <laughs> we talk about you. We talk about your kids. Just like you talk about us and our kids, we return the favor. There comes a time when enough is enough and a holy, righteous God can't let you keep on sinning. Propitiation means this. Jesus took your place. And whatever should have been your punishment for sin, he took it. That's love. You know something? I could never love anyone quite like that. I really couldn't. You know, I... I could probably give my life for two people, my wife and my daughter, the only two. There's not another one of you that I'd give my life for. I'm sorry. If it's your life or mine, you better be right with God because you're about to meet him. 
just not, I'm just not doing that. But I can't take their sin. I mean, I could give my life for my wife, I could give my life for my daughter, but I can't take their sin. I can't pay that price. It's impossible. Only God can do that. But we should do that, but only God can. And Jesus, being God in the flesh, could, did. And that is love. It is the essence of love. God and Jesus showing their love to us. Beloved, it says in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Shouldn't that, if God loves us that much, can't, can't we love one another? Verse 12, it says, no one has seen God at any time. We haven't. But if we love one another, God abides in us in his love. And I love this verse, verse word, verse 12, is perfected in us. No one has seen God. You and I can't see God. Sometimes we'll say, you know, we might be the only person, you know, we might be the only Jesus, the only example of Jesus anyone ever sees, and I get that, I get that. But this is the point, we, we, can't, we can't see God, but we can experience in other people the love of God. And so what needs to happen then, his love should be perfected in us. That word perfected means completed. It comes from a word that's used often, teleos. And it means to come to his finality, to completion. In, in uh, uh, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect because my heavenly Father is perfect. And we say, oh, we've got to be sinless. We can't be sinless. And that's not what it means. It means to be completed. It means to come to the end. Uh, the concept runs throughout the New Testament. James writes, consider pure joy when you suffer the, type, uh, the, the trials and tribulations of many types because the testing of your faith develops uh, endurance and let endurance have its perfect, completed work in you. And so what we have in the New Testament is the, t- is the idea of completion, of getting where we need to be. And love can be perfected. It can be brought to a place of completion. And in that, people will experience and see the love of God. So when, it, when his love is completed or perfected in us, then we know that we abide in him and he in us. He has given us his Holy Spirit. His spirit lives within us. And so that love is that evidence of that spirit working in life. Verse 15 goes back to what was said earlier. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we, we, we are followers of Jesus. We have a confession that Jesus is God in the flesh. And it is lived out in our love for people. Uh, have you ever known someone in a church who just didn't seem to be very loving? Don't look at the person next to you. <laughs> but have you ever known someone? Is that man? You know, they're always at church, but they're just, they're mean. Have you ever met a mean? I mean, they're mean. And I can think of several. None, none here in the, in the room. Uh, online, it's like a dozen. But uh, it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> Christians who are mean and ornery, 
Man, I, I, I don't want anything to do with him. I, I remember a time in Bridgeport, uh, one of the other churches in town were doing something. Uh, they were raising money for their new facility and collecting, people could buy chairs or whatever. I don't know what it was. And, but, and they had it on some social, some social media website or whatever. And the people just started just ripping this church. Now, the church had been a split off of my church before I ever got there. No one's ever split while I've been there. But people have split, but churches have never split. I go to churches that have split and try to pick it up. So this church has split off us. So they, they, by the time I got to Bridgeport, this church is getting so big and blew past them. And so there was a lot of bitterness. And so people were ugly things. And I stood up Sunday. And I said, for crying out loud, don't you ever attach your name to First Baptist Church and write stuff like that. Don't make me have to get on and come right after you and rip you to shreds and say we have nothing to do with you. You're mean and honorary. Don't ever mention our church. Because I promise you, I'll come for you. And I meant that with everything I had. I mean that now. Don't drag our church into your meanness and honoriness. Because I don't have to, but Joe or Troy will be coming after you pretty quick. <laughs> I get older, I get tired easily, so I delegate. I send Mike, but Mike won't, he's too nice. <laughs> Troy, love it. <laughs> oh, he's back there too. That's <laughs> right. We have seen and testified, verse 14, I mean, in verse 15, 16, I'm sorry. We have come to know and have believed that the love which God has for us, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We're there. So verse 17, once again, this is perfected in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he is. And we are in this world. First John is one of those great books about uh, the assurance or, or, or of, the, of salvation. And uh, next, I think next week or whenever I deal with uh, 1 John 5, 13, with these things uh, we write to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know you have eternal life. No, 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 no. Here he says, you have confidence. You're going to face God, judgment. You're going to face God one day. We are. You have confidence. How do you have confidence? Because you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and you love people. You know, I... I don't know what all is going to happen with the judgment. You know, people say you're going to relive all the sins of your life. And I don't actually think that because of salvation and you know, all that. But anyways, whatever happens, I know this. I'm good to go. Not because of me, because of Jesus. But in Jesus saving me, he gave me two things that I could not possibly get on my own. He gave me a knowledge of him as a savior. And he gave me a love which I could never have on my own. And sometimes it may be hard to see, but they're there. Because I have the confidence of what will happen. Verse 18 then says this. There is no fear in love. And be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfecting the love. If you are afraid to meet God, there is a problem. Now, I understand, you know, we, we, we preach, you know, we, we tremble in the presence of God and worship. I, I got all that. I understand all that stuff. I'm just talking about if you're afraid, and, and we all have some fears about dying and what's going to happen, but if you're afraid to meet God, 
something is wrong. I'm not afraid to meet God because God is loving. And I'm going to experience that love because I've already experienced it in Jesus. And because I've experienced the love of God in Jesus, I'm not afraid. Now, I'm not in a hurry to meet him. But when the time comes, we're good. Because that love of God has cast out the fear. And that's what love does. It casts it out. So here's what he says in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And then this beautiful verse 20. Um, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Back in the summer, I preached from John 13. And I began and ended the series of John 13. Preaching from verse 34 and 35. When Jesus said this, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another and this is how they will know you are my disciples when you love one another he said that hours before the cross a few days earlier they were trying to trap jesus to choose one they said what's the greatest commandment and jesus said it's simple you love god and love others and the guy asking that said well yeah you're right yeah, you got it he answered that correctly. There's nothing else you can do about it. Love God, love other people. And so Jesus, in essence, took all of the Jewish law, the Ten Commandments and the 600-something laws that they had, and he narrowed it down to two commandments, love God, love others. It's pretty simple, and that's how we live our life. By the way, when we talk about our church, what do we want to do? We want to honor God and help people come to Jesus. When we say we want to honor God, we are talking about our love for God draws us, drives us to honor him. And we want people to meet Jesus because we love people. We want them to know Jesus. So when we say we want to honor God in everything we do and get people to Jesus as fast as we can, it's because we want to love God and love others. We want to fulfill that commitment. Then Jesus took his disciples, and he made it even simpler. He said, you love one another. Because here's what happened. If you love one another, then you love God. You see, you, if you love each other, you do that only because you have a love for God. See, people are hard to love. They're really hard. And people, people are, man, they're just lousy sometimes. And, you know, I just think, you know, you just, I'll be honest with you, I think the things that have been, you know, happening in our culture, in our country, the last, you know, whatever, in our state, I'm like, golly, some people, how do you love someone? I mean, and I'm not trying to be political. Okay? I'm not being political. I'm just morally. You think it's okay to slaughter a child? Even for that child to be born, and as long as the umbilical cord is attached, you can murder and butcher that child? How do you love someone? You can't. Except for Christ. You know, that's an extreme, but people are hard to love. You, just, you meet people like, ah, that's, you can't love them. So here's the thing. If you say you love God who you have never seen, but you can't love people that you do see and know, how, how can you love God? It's not working. So here's Jesus just made it simple. He said, here's the thing. You love God. All right. You know how I know you love God? Because you love 
people. And, and so we might say this, you know how I know I love and honor God? It's because I want people to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ no matter who they are. Anybody's welcome to come to church here, welcome to come and worship with us. Even people who live the most horrible, despicable lives that you might think of, of you know, live outside of everything we believe, we want them to come to Jesus. And so we're going to love them because we love God. And if we don't love them, there's a problem. There may be a problem if we don't love them. The problem isn't them, it's, it's, it's us. And they're not loving God. Think about what's, what's going to be happening down the road in, in, in the Christian faith, in the church. People are going to come after us more and more. You may, not, you may think, oh, well, it'll all get better at some point. It's not. Christianity is going for at least a while to come under assault in different, in different avenues. And our natural tendency is to not love the people who attack us. But the response of the believer is to love them because God loves us. It's going to be a tough test for us. It's going to be a measuring stick for you and for me about love. Now, that love has to begin with loving other believers. So before I can love the world, I've got to love my fellow follower of Christ. And, and, and that should be natural for us. It's not always natural. <laughs> you know, so, as a pastor, sometimes, i got to be honest with you, some people just, they are hard to love. I, I mean, I can be hard to love. I mean, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> 44 years, so something right. Not all of that had been married, by the way. I mean, we were dating. Let me clarify what I mean when all that was married. We were dating, got married, proper word. But you, we've got to begin with the love this way. And so when a church has hostility, church has people who aren't loving, people who are hard and harsh, there's something wrong. If you, if you have a problem, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you've got a problem with your brother in Christ, go resolve it. If you have a problem with somebody, you need to resolve it. We talk about that all the time. You need to get that fixed. Because if you don't get your problems with one another fixed, you're going to have bigger problems down the line. Here's the thing about churches that, that don't grow and the churches that struggle. Oftentimes, they're having an internal conflict. I've, I've pastored two churches that split before I ever got there, before I ever got there. <laughs> and the second one, there was so much bitterness and so many problems. I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I'd have known that, Lord, I wouldn't have come, which is why he said, that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> I just wanted you to wait and experience it in all its glory. Loving people and believing Jesus as God in the flesh, the two most important things we do. It's not our belief about the end times. It's not our belief even about creation. It's not whether we agree about everything in the Bible. It's not it. I'm, I know it's Baptist. That's hard to think about. It's two things that matter. Our understanding of Jesus and our love for people. Listen again. John is almost quoting Jesus. He's almost repeating what he said in John 13. If someone says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, this commandment we have from Jesus, the one who loves God should love his brother, his sister also. So here's the question. Do you love one another?